You can lay down if you feel more comfortable. Maybe I might. <laughs> Are you in bed sometimes listening to the show? Every day. That's where uh, I listen to podcasts. Oh, awesome. Good morning, Nicolette. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Liquid Gold. Michael, let's go for it. Where the holidays are long and the wine is cold, welcome to a special Thanksgiving episode of Liquid Gold. Here we are in Wedgwood, Houston at the We Own This Town studios. Shout out to weownthistown.net. Thank you, Michael. And our producer, Michael Eads. Happy holidays to Michael and the whole We Own This Town family. This is a special episode. Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. I'm just happy to be here along for the ride, my name's Mike Wolf, along with my co-host, Mr. Kenneth Deadman. Hey, Kenneth, Mike. happy holidays, brother. It's We're here. Yeah. We kind of started season. this whole thing in the holidays last year. This is the official. And now we're back. The official beginning. The official Thanksgiving today. throwdown. It starts today. We'll probably be in an argument by the end of it. I <laughs> think I see whiskey out of the corner of my eye, mm-hmm. and uh, it's staring at It's actually staring at me, the whiskey. But we're going to talk a lot today about wine because that's what you drink at thanksgiving it's what i love to drink at the thanksgiving for for not only the day of thanksgiving but the prep before we're going to talk a little bit about that we're going to talk you through some prep and you can drink pretty much any wine with thanksgiving dinner now our our guest today is one of the more passionate people i've ever been around when it comes to wine and knows so much about wine and we never get to hang out. And so we had to have her here so we could all hang out and Very drink true. some lovely wines. We have Nicolette Anktel, the sommelier at Husk here in Nashville. And just an all-around amazing gal. Nicolette, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You've got a lot of knowledge to instill into us, as always. And we've got some really awesome wines today to talk about. And we'll be talking about other wines that you can bring to your Thanksgiving table that to, to pair with. You know, we could go through almost every side dish and probably come up with a good pairing. Now. This is a, a new uh, blend of grapes this year I was reading. For our thirsty listeners out there, what exactly are we pouring? Yeah, it's oh, it's, yeah. it's a different beast mm. this year. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's lovely. Before we dive into all these different wine topics that we've got on the docket today, I want to go through, uh, give a shout out to some of our sponsors, Walker Jewelry. Walker Jewelry is at 105 24th Street, Old Hickory, Tennessee, just across the river there. That's Lindsay. uh, uh, From Madison. Lindsay Walker. Lindsay Walker with an A. Lindsay Walker with an A. She makes beautiful jewelry there. She's going to be making some custom bar spoons here in the near future. She's been working on that. And she also teaches jewelry classes to hundreds and thousands of people every year at the space there at uh, 105 24th Street, Old Hickory. It will be open to the public. She's launching a community jewelry space in December. It'll be open to the public and anyone looking for a space to do metalwork. And she is at walkerjewelry.com and on Instagram at walkerjewelry. Also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Nashville Food Project. They do amazing work. 
The National Food Project has some needs lately, some things that they need in their stable as we get closer to the holidays and because they are always feeding people. They are always uh, feeding the community. They're in need of whole grain pasta, whole wheat tortillas, Hmm. peanut butter, applesauce that does not have any sugar added, nuts, raisins, canola, olive or grapeseed oils, some diced tomatoes as well always helps. And for info on donating or volunteering, go to thenashvillefoodproject.org. So shout out to Jennifer Justice and all the great people over there. And then we want to throw a little shout out to our man, Maine Coon Sign Company. Yeah, that's right. David Wright of Maine Coon Sign Company. He does all these beautiful hand-painted signs. He did the doors at Chopper and just an all-around super talented guy. He's done multiple, multiple storefronts all over East Nashville, but not exclusively East Nashville. If you see like the the mural work at the four-way mart on Fatherland, mm. he did that a couple of years ago. Oh, that's beautiful. Started. Oh. Also, uh, Lindsay Walker's storefront as well. Anyone who's been on the show or involved in the show has a sign painted by him, pretty much. Pretty much, dude. We got to get him to paint the logo on the uh, on the front door of the offices. Yeah. Yeah, he's down to do it. Oh, cool. Yeah, get a hold of him at mancoon.sign.co on Instagram. That was kind of get a kind of meta Uncle because Dave. I feel like we did the 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 little shout out in real time, and then I realized that I need his services. Yeah, so it's kind of crazy how that works. He's an amazing dude. <laughs> that worked he's really well. One of the more interesting dudes I've I've met in the like Nashville skateboard community. He's like, I think he's only about twenty five years old, but from the shoulders up he's about an 80 year old man mm. i remember like a lot of people you talk to around nashville when it's like yeah i think you know my friend kenneth he had a little little smile came to his uh face yeah it's nice yeah. yeah yeah get a hold of him uncle dave so we've got some special juice in our glasses here and this is the kind of wine that could inspire a conversation at the Thanksgiving table, but also I think it's important to have bottles that are around maybe just for yourself or just for like your prep, you're prepping the night before, you're prepping a few days before, you need some good, light, refreshing wine. I like to think that this is something for everyone, but maybe not the case, I don't know, but I love it. It is a Musa Musette, a sparkling wine, a pet nat from France. This year, as we noticed a little bit earlier, they're using some different grapes. And so, Nicolette, I know you love this wine. I was introduced to this wine at Husk many, many years ago. For our listeners that might not know what a pet nut is, what makes a wine a pet nut? The style of pet nut was traditionally kind of the first fermentation or this first sparkling that was created. So the bubbles compared to Method Champenois are going to be a lot more delicate. I think that these styles of wine are meant to be enjoyed before food. They're meant to be kind of easy drinking, lightly effervescent. And I think a lot of people love champagne and I think that they drink champagne by itself where Mm -hmm. these styles of wine kind of can cross a lot of boundaries. They can be, like I said, before food or they can also be 
with food without mm-hmm. kind of getting in the way too much. This would be a great wine to open when people are starting to arrive or kind of as you are moving from the heavy prep, heavy finishing some of the cooking items into when the guests are arriving. It's a sparkling rosé, lightly effervescent. It's just beautiful. It has such a fruit forward strawberry thing that I feel like that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I always notice about Moussa Mousset. But this one this year, they're using different grapes and... How do you feel about this one compared to the other years? Yeah, so this is Grulo Gris and Gamay, where previous years it was heavier Gamay. So I just think, for me, this is a lot more tart, Mm -hmm. um, where before in previous vintages it was like creamier Mm -hmm. and kind of had like almost like a creamsicle, like strawberry creamsicle or strawberry shortcake thing going on. Yeah. um, Where this is like cranberry tart strawberry qualities which is also exciting um because i think it kind of like gets your palate going i am kind of hungry now that i drink this yeah it (laughs) begs for food yeah we should uh can we like uber eat some taco bell over here right now certainly this would be pretty good we get the intern on it i was thinking about bringing canned cranberry sauce this would go amazing absolutely thinking about cranberry (laughs) sauce when i taste it even just looking at it yeah this it's would like go amazing splash on it with just the cranberry sauce if you could somehow do that. Or you could you could sneak a little bit into your cranberry sauce. You, right. could, you could take this wine or a wine like it, like a light rosé, and cook it down and cook it down and cook it down and then maybe add a little splash of it to your cranberry. Mm-hmm. So that's something you could do. Now, since we're talking about cranberries, do you guys, is that a traditional thing for you guys for Thanksgiving for your families? The cranberry sauce? Yes. That's the thing. Uh, yeah, but honestly, it's always been out of a can. Yeah, always out of the can yep. with the like the ribs on it. Still, yeah. like, like it like, looks like the can. Yeah, yeah my but family you can does nothing it. to disguise that. We just it's like, yep. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it has like a nice half moon on the plate when you cut it. It's just there for support when you need it. Yeah, I feel like there's there's great chefs out there who I'll look to during this time of year when it's time to start cooking Thanksgiving. I always look to Ina Garden. The, the barefoot contessa mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. recipes the base of her recipes are always really good she'll tell you how you can kind of wrap your arms around something so you can consult with her as always but there's a lot of great chefs out there when it comes to cranberry they're like yeah just just take it out of the can and uh maybe add some more sugar some orange zest mm-hmm. um cranberries is, it's it's a staple and it's it kind of the only time you're gonna eat it yeah. Is Thanksgiving. Well, it's necessary also with everything that's super rich and heavy and full of butter. That's like the one tart item on the plate. Definitely. It's funny. I was thinking about this wine and the secret that French have trying to gauge the American palate and how like kombucha is so popular. And I was drinking kombucha earlier and hmm. I was like, this reminds me of the kombucha. Absolutely. Totally. Earlier, where like a few years ago, it wouldn't, it wasn't like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. So you're hypothesizing that there is maybe year-to-year fluctuations on what's going on yeah. in the French wine making community based on American palates? I Absolutely. I think oh, that fascinating. obviously Americans drink a huge percentage of French wine. And I think that Americans' palates are changing and they kind of change every year. Hence the reason why like Germany went through this like, emotional roller coaster with dry, off-dry, sweet Riesling. Mm-hmm. 
and now we can kind of appreciate a lot of different styles and I think that people are understanding that and I think it's the same with like the natural wine movement and like these light effervescent sparkling wines I think that people want something that's like tart because as a consumer they can like equate oh I like kombucha oh maybe I'll like this oh Mm. it's alcoholic and tart yeah um okay so we're kind of like slowly manipulating them Mm. through kombucha oh wow! it's amazing nice (laughs) it used to be coca-cola yeah (laughs) (laughs) wow everywhere you go there's kombucha yeah even my grandma knows what kombucha is yeah i would say you walked into maybe turnip truck or a a small grocery store five years ago and there was a couple kombuchas or maybe like one it's now a, there's like a whole every gas station it seems like now in yeah. gas stations yeah, yeah good in point. like yeah. the middle of virginia there was a kombucha wall at a gas station like huh. truck stop style mm. i've never really pondered that but yeah it's it is fascinating how mm. kombucha blew up in the last 10 years yeah it's so great do you have a favorite kombucha because i don't drink a ton of kombucha myself i mean i like it but i don't <laughs> I just don't, it's not part of my daily routine. Yeah, I actually Maybe make, it should be. I make kombucha a mm. lot at my house using High Garden Tea, which is fantastic mm, and beautiful. makes amazing kombucha. I think GT's, I think is the name of the brand, mm. is like the most popular. The Synergy brand is really awesome. High Garden also makes kombucha, the mm-hmm. folklore. Tell me about some of the, some of the kombuchas you've made with their botanicals. Yeah. So I did their ruby black tea and peaches. So secondary secondary fermentation with peaches. Mm. Um, so it's like dry, little bitter, and then the like peach essence without being actually sweet. Mm. Once you Whoa. ferment to kind of get the sugar out of there. Mm-hmm. I've done mate, which was pretty awesome with some pear and a little bit of honey. Wow. So like green tea. Green teas are a little harder to ferment. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Mm-hmm. I think it's something with the yeast and something I've read like with the tannin, you actually, it like ferments better with high tannin teas. I don't know chemically oh, wow. why, but um, yeah. Very That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. Something to look more into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. We got something to dive into. Tannin tea. The is kombucha there, episode. Is there a connection? That'll yeah. be your return. <laughs> yeah. Kombucha yeah. shots 2020, February 16th. Coming soon. Uh, it'll be here before we know it. Yeah, shout out High Garden. We use their sarsaparilla and their sassafras at Chopper. And always a good source for botanicals. And it's no small thing to be able to get those things and have them be vibrant, aromatic. Because when you go to homebrew stores a lot of times, or you, you get things online, you don't know what you're getting. One time we were in a pinch. We needed sarsaparilla. We got some online. It came. And it was like dirt in a plastic bag. I was like, oh, great. Well, this smells like nothing. <laughs> but yeah, they, they do a great job over there. Yeah, they have great Great quality. resource. Mm-hmm. Tea is uh, a wild thing to source. With, of course, climate change right now, all the regions are kind of moving moving around. Like, well, tea agriculture, is that the right? Tea, sure. tea agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tea is in the movement. It's rapidly changing with climate change. Yeah. Well, as you're getting ready for your Thanksgiving feast, I'm going to throw a little some secrets out. You guys can throw can add any uh, any prepping secrets that you've got or tips. Maybe it's not a secret. It is always good to have a lot of stock around when mm-hmm. you're when you're kind of getting ready. So if you maybe it's three or four days out and you could make a 
chicken stock. You could get a rotisserie chicken, eat the chicken, take the bones and whatever's left over. Cook down some onions and carrots and celery. Throw the chicken bones in there and fill it up with water. Cook it down for 8 to 12 hours and you've got a really potent weapon to use. You can also do it with, there's places that do turkey rotisserie. Uh, so you could do a turkey stock. Turkey stock would be preferred. And I know that Porter Road Butcher, they've got turkey stock that they're selling right now and they sell it from the frozen section. So you can go get that and let that thaw before you're getting your, your Thanksgiving prep work going. But when you're doing s- stuffing, that's the one where you really are going to want a ton of stock because there's really no such thing as stuffing that's too moist. <laughs> Agreed. So you, you, you can definitely uh, amp up the stock on that. It's a great thing to cook down and use for the base of your gravy. It's, it's something you can splash into your Brussels sprouts as you're braising those down, if that's something you're going to be doing. And one thing I've learned over the years about mashed potatoes is a potato ricer is can be key where you can you're basically uh increasing the surface area of all the other ingredients that you can get on the potatoes if you're if you're cooking them down and then pushing them through the ricer that can be huge another little secret and i guess this is i think it was in an old anthony bourdain book the the app the appetites book he did that had a lot of thanksgiving stuff where he goes over potatoes and they you boil the potatoes and then you put them in a dry pot that doesn't have any water and you're cooking them and you let all the steam come out Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of the starch out and then you're reinforcing that moisture with cream and butter Mm. so that's kind of a cool technique he wasn't able to say it in the book because i think he would be violating culinary secrets but I think it's a secret to Joel Robuchon's. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's Joel Robuchon's. Yeah. I made the same thing when I worked Oh, you've at- made them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about your experience with that. Well, it was pretty intense. I worked for a chef who actually graduated with Grant from Alinea. Whoa. And so his, 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 like, French foundation was so strong. So, yeah. The Joel Robuchon potato classic. Wow. Yep. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Where And where was this? Where, where, in New where, York. In New York? And is this uh, like equal parts potato, cream, and butter? Yeah, basically. (laughs) Wow. But the drying out of the liquid to then reincorporate it is a tremendous part. And then the stirring of the butter into it because you're you're like doing a bermonte with potato. Mm. Right. Because that consistency is really hard to achieve. Interesting. Potatoes are like the eggs of the culinary world. They're just so versatile. Mm -hmm, Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're incredible. I'd Tell say, me more. <laughs> I'd say one thing with mashed potatoes that a, a rule that I stick by: you don't have to, but uh, don't be afraid to add a little sugar to your mashed potatoes. My grandma did a lot of sugar, and of course, as a kid, I loved it because it was like candy. That, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how I fell in love with mashed. That potatoes. sounds like grandma. But um, <laughs> sugar yeah, in there. Year, years and years later, I I do add sugar. Not too much. Hmm. I don't want them to be sweet per se. It's another level of flavor. And for some reason, I feel like it slows you down from overfilling on mashed potatoes, which is easy to do. So if you were just doing mashed potatoes on their own, what would you pair with a plate of mashed potatoes, Nicolette? Something to kind of mimic the flavor of the potato, Mm. like copying the butter aspect. So cliche, but... 
a rich Chardonnay that mm. has a creamy texture to it. Yeah. Crab um, pleaser, for sure. Yeah. Mom pleaser. Yeah. Grandma Coug- pleaser. Cougar juice. Cougar juice. <laughs> yeah. How's there, how's there not a wine on the shelf at Thanksgiving <laughs> cougar juice? I feel like there has to be. There's just too many people vying for it, yeah. probably. They're like, it's held up in the oh, courts. This looks fun. I think that's what cake bread is. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, like you, by like, the end of the, the day. If you word around, it says cougar juice. <laughs> if you rip off the label, there's a cougar. Oh, my gosh. No, 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 it's That'd like be a awesome. black That's so panther. good. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about Brussels sprouts? You guys cook Brussels sprouts for, for Thanksgiving? It's um, a thing. All you I need, you need like the bacon. Not as a child, but definitely now. You need bacon. You can, some other things I've used, duck fat. You can sneak a little duck fat in there. Uh, buy some from the store, your local butcher. Chicken fat, schmaltz. This is a great thing for Brussels sprouts. Any fat, really, yeah, that yeah. you want to add into the equation. But bacon's the obvious one, but I always like to like, sneak in one other one. If, you, if you're cutting them in half, you can get a nice sear on those Brussels sprouts before you braise them. So that's something I like to do. Spread them out. Get a nice sear in like a cast iron roasting pan or something. But yeah, Brussels sprouts. Mm-hmm. Apple. Apple. Apple's mm. good. Apple would be a way to, yeah, to really broaden it out. Apple and bacon's a big yeah. thing. Oh, that's beautiful. Apple. I like that's that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Good job. Uh, what would you pair with Brussels sprouts on their the own? The Brassica family is like wine pairing enemy. Mm, um, mm, mm, that's yeah, good to like know. It's like go to war. You see like a wine bottle and a Brussels sprout and they're like fighting. But yeah. uh, Gruner Veltliner because it has that like celery juice, lower acidity, pepper thing that just like really cuts through any like weird chemical that might come out of the Brussels sprout. Then you throw bacon in there and that's a crowd pleaser because the wine attaches itself to the bacon. Yeah, because you got a fat in there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that broadens it out. Totally. That's really cool. So I feel like what we're going to get to with all this is like, these eight wines that you can have on the table at Thanksgiving for, you know, and it's like you got you got the big Chardonnay for for everyone maybe, and then you've for got the Aunt, Gruner for Aunt Karen. Aunt Karen's got her Chardonnay, and then Uncle Kenneth has like his Gruner <laughs> in, Dude, the, I, I was in a coffee have, mug. <laughs> pretty odd. I, every Thanksgiving, I have a flask with me, and I always end up leaving it somewhere in the house, and like so the next year. I mean, not, I see my I see my family enough, but like yeah. it's always like, oh hey, you you left this last Thanksgiving while you're in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and I always have a new one that I that's the one that I end up leaving. So I'm rotating flasks between my parents' house. Wow, and it ends up right in the year. couch, yeah. right in the couch somewhere. Cushions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. There's a there's like a red recliner that uh, <laughs> that I sit in when I'm watching football, <laughs> and like my dog's playing with my nephew, and that's usually where it ends up. I like that you specified the color. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like one of those things it's that like, like oh, I call red chair. I yeah, call red it's chair. It's like the one of these. One. Yeah. It's, I, I think my parents got it when they were first married and it, it probably should be thrown away and it's probably a health hazard, but it's just like this one piece of furniture that's always been in any of my parents' houses. Yeah. Another staple. Now jump in if you have an, if you have your own staple. Turkey. Turkey's the main staple. Mm-hmm. All right. And so do you wet brine? Do you dry brine? Do you fry? Do you just season it well? One secret I heard now, this was from someone at Food and Wine Magazine, the guy who runs the test kitchen. I don't remember. Yeah, his name. I, the Bon Appetit. 
was it was it Bon Appetit? Continue. But it's a man- I'm curious what you're gonna. It, I think it was the food and wine test kitchen guy does mayonnaise, a coating of mayonnaise. Oh no, this is and something he's different. like, this is for everyone who procrastinates and doesn't brine, doesn't have their stuff together to brine, and then this is what you do day of, coat it in a bunch of mayonnaise before you put it in the oven, and it's basically like gonna save you the time to baste. Mm. So you don't have to baste. You coat it in mayonnaise. If you see some of the mayonnaise evaporating, get you know get a little more yeah. on there. <laughs> we can't see the visual. Yeah. We need the YouTube. We need the YouTube video of the. Yeah. the it's a quick Looks like you're styling hair. <laughs> it's a quick it's motion. Like the eighties though, because it's like woo, yeah, it's big like hair. Conan O'Brien's. Yeah, yeah. Hair. It's basically like fixing a big head of hair with mayonnaise <laughs> in your hands and just rubbing it on a turkey. Um, and I like I liked that. I've never done that. But it definitely makes sense to me that that would work. And apparently the mayonnaise flavor gets like sort of cooked out. The f- it's, it's not about the flavor. But I imagine if there is a little bit of that flavor in because mayonnaise for me is a big thing when it comes to Thanksgiving leftovers. Mm. And it's time to make the sandwiches oh, yeah. with all the leftovers, which right. we should probably get into a little bit later maybe with the whiskey. But imagine if you had a mayonnaise roasted turkey. The next day, and it's like, maybe it's soaked up more of the flavor. Maybe more things have happened, and it's even more tender. And then you throw it on a sandwich with a bunch of mayonnaise. Is there like a flavor bomb? Is there like an OD? Yeah. Do you... (laughs) Do you then OD on mayonnaise? Because I was I was just like gonna one, I was gonna one up you and just roast the whole like in a deep pan, get a lot of mayonnaise, <laughs> and, mayonnaise bath. <laughs> yeah, and, and roast off this this turkey inside mayonnaise. <laughs> That's a lot of mayonnaise, dude. Yeah, yeah. You might need a couple a couple bottles. What's the PPO on mayonnaise anyway? Like good mayonnaise, alcohol like, content, uh, price per ounce. Oh. <laughs> I was like, is that a measurement? No, I was baiting y'all. I haven't been down that rabbit hole. Um, I just, I go for, I reach for Dukes in the grocery store aisles. Sure. The uh, the other thing <laughs> oh, yeah. that you can do, so I love a buttermilk brine. I've done that before when I had to cook the turkey in my own kitchen. I think I've only done it once at the house I'm in now. But my family was in and... I was feeling the pressure. So, yeah, I, I believe, yes, I did a buttermilk brine, and it was beautiful. It was great. My mother, shout out, Mama, love you. I'm going to miss you for Thanksgiving. Um, she does a dry brine of a bunch of different seasonings, and it is uh, her turkey is always, like, perfect. It's so good. What, what are y'all's secrets, thoughts about turkey in general? Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. My mom does Star a the dry brine with uh, a lot of butter, like kind of with your mayonnaise, um, your mayonnaise theory. She just uses sticks and sticks of butter with, mm. um, I don't know, Mrs. Dash or something like that. Like, yeah. Uh, she does use fresh herbs, but um, she also uses, you know, like some of the cheater products, which I don't mm-hmm. blame her. It tastes great. Mm. Gonna sound bad, but like the turkey's always been the weakest part of the Thanksgiving. Sure, but I, lots of citrus. I don't. Inside. I don't disagree with you. I mean, yeah. I, I like turkey, and I like when it's really good, and it's it gives well, you that familiar. A, it's feeling. a weak bird to begin with. But it can't it's fly. It's all about the sides. It's like a meat and three. Yeah. It's all about the sides. But I did. I was listening to Bona Petit's test recipe, and mm. they were saying like deconstructing the bird and doing like a roulade in one part, and then roasting like the legs, and it was completely different but i think like the thrill of thanksgiving is having the constructed bird on the table oh yeah it's give and take yeah the presentation and the carving yeah it's a ceremony you know the electric knife 
Yeah. Oh yeah. My dad, you know, because we had to put the we had to carve the turkey in a certain place where the plug was. Yeah. So, you know, right by the plug, so you can, right, yeah. so the knife can reach it. Yeah. It was like on the uh, corner of the table to be. Yeah. To be slid to the middle. Yeah. And I got you know this is another I love I go back to it every time of year this time of year. Uh, Anthony Bourdain's last book Appetites, which was really focused mm-hmm. around Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Great, great cooking book. All his his cooking language for cookbooks was always so good. His Lahal cookbook was always one of my favorites because it was it was like don't scorch the butter, numb nuts, you know, like <laughs> stuff like that. Where it was like, okay, I needed Aww. to hear that. Yeah, but I love going back to that book every Thanksgiving. And he talks about having two turkeys, which I think is cool. He's got the you got the show turkey, mm-hmm. which you're not going to really eat. Mm-hmm. You prep this turkey, you build this turkey, you roast it. And it's all for show. It's for bringing out to your guests and showing them. And then you're going to say, all right, here's the turkey we're going to eat. We're going to go back and carve it. And then the one you, you take it back and you set it to the side. You're going to be car- be carving that up later for leftovers and everything. And then the turkey that you use is you're not cooking it for show. You know, you're like, you're just trying to cook it for flavor. Right. So for anyone out there trying to feed a lot of people, if you need two turkeys, I thought that was a pretty cool yeah, that's kind a of a gangster idea. thing to do. Like, here's my show no, it turkey. Is pretty cool. I don't here's think I've ever turkey. seen someone buying like two turkeys at once, like three turkeys, mm. four turkeys. Kind of yeah. cool. Okay, so question of the night. As night falls... And we're getting ready to prep our Thanksgiving feast. What do we pair with this goddamn turkey in front of us? Just the turkey. I, you have the floor. Just the turkey? <laughs> yeah, just turkey. Just Ooh. turkey. Yeah. I we mean, can take a break if you need to. <laughs> no, I I think it's hard because you're trying to please different palates. Mm. You're oh, yeah. trying to accommodate a lot of different flavors. Yeah. And guests. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always think that like you're you can lean towards something that is slightly off dry, like Riesling. Mm. That is amazing, but I do think that oftentimes people expect a red wine. Yeah. Um. So Beaujolais. Mm. Yeah, I knew you were gonna do your, that. Yeah, obviously. That's, but that's I was always, thinking a lot always. lately, though, that I think Merlot has a bad rep, and I think like. A riper Merlot from a good producer, probably from California. And this seems insane that I'm even saying this. But I think that something like that, Mm. um, the tannins are kind of velvety and Mm. mocha-like. I think you could maybe get away with that. Mm. You're talking about one that's a little more, I wouldn't say like sugary, but like a little fruitier. Yeah, riper. Still dry. Definitely dry. Yeah, but something that's going to be a little more weighty right riper i mean but i do think like beaujolais it's just the win-win because of the tartness but i i do like think sometimes that i've never gone through that experience with merlot but i do think that it could be a good option Mm. because it plays the game of you know ripe fruit velvety that could kind of mimic the same flavors that you're eating, like thinking about what the texture of the food is mm-hmm. and the texture of the wine. Is there a particular yeah. producer that comes to mind? <sighs> There's not, no. That's why I don't feel like- really got to like, seek it out, huh? Yeah, I don't feel confident in it because I really haven't experienced it too much, but I've been, I was thinking about it when we were yeah. talking about it and I was like, hmm, 
Yeah. I feel like that could be good. Yeah, it's shooting from the hip. Yeah. You're shooting that's from cool. the hip right no, now. No, I want to look yeah, for that's that. Because yeah. I'm always going to have a Beaujolais there anyway. But right. And I the think the other wines are like where I have a problem. Yeah. Last year we did uh, an off dry Lambrusco that was fantastic. Sure. And has tannins. But I do think sometimes someone wants to kind of get out of that off dryness. They don't want to just like crush a bunch of wines that have some residual sugar all night they want right. other items mm-hmm. also wine tastes different after you continuously drink wine yeah that's true yeah right <laughs> from an experienced wine drinker yeah. Yeah. Hey, it only gets take better. it to heart that's why you drink the best wine first mm, yeah pro tip yeah so so you're saying like get some great refreshing lighter wines that are just like you're putting a little money into them you are you're asking the store you're buying them from this is probably not grocery store wine this is like you want to go to woodland you want to go to your special cork dorks your your grand crew grand crew grand crew is great (laughs) uh thank you you want to go see some of your friends bottle shop in franklin shout out go see some of these people they will steer you in the right direction you could say hey you know what i want badass wine when people are getting there and when we're kind of getting into the meal a little bit and then give me something cheap, light, French, vibrant for the meal. Yeah. Or a nice California Merlot, because I heard it on Liquid Gold. <laughs> <laughs> Wine expert Nicolette. I like that. I like that. I like that uh, That sort of game plan. What else do you have for the game plan of yeah. the day? I mean... There's all these different wines we can pull from, because I always go with a lighter rosé early on. Like, yeah. drink it, have some of this now. I love this wine. Maybe you might carry this glass into dinner mm-hmm. and then you finish that glass and you just throw a red on top. What I else think you got? I like this game planning. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm constantly trying to define like different textures and, and how my palate's going to change because after you drink a lot of wine, you do get palate fatigue, especially if you're drinking the same wine. Right. So I want to go like racy at the beginning or bubbly, so I want champagne, or I want any sparkling, or cremant, or a cava, then I want to progress into a different texture. So Mm. maybe I'll move into something skin contact, which is going to be still tart, but still have, you know, drink like a red wine. Like Um, a Nouveau, perhaps. Like a Beaujolais Nouveau? Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean like skin contact in like white. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I think I want to go into maybe a tart red. Um, and then I want something kind of bolder mm. Um, mm. with tannin. I want it to kind of like stick to my tongue. Yeah. And so when I'm eating all these fatty things, I can kind of play the game of like fat washes my tongue. Then I'm drinking something tannic. It's covering it again. And it's kind of like the stance. Very interesting. The stance. I like this. Yeah. And this is a nice segue into our next bottle that we're going to get into, which is a skin contact wine. Let me go grab it. <laughs> Do you need a natural it's like, segue? It's like the old, um, that ultimate hospitality. She was coming around. To yeah, I know. Yeah. I think I didn't notice that. I saw it. Thank you. <laughs> into our next bottle here, Metamorphica. The coolest looking wine bottle I've seen. Yeah, in a this long is amazing. Time. We are going to post this on our Instagram. This is one of the coolest wine labels that we've had on the show, bottle labels that we've had on the show. Um, tell us about where you got this wine and what kind of led to you picking it out. 
so this wine is from Catalonia in Spain, so near oh, Barcelona. Oh, God. Uh, Costador is the producer, 100% Macchiobeo. Um, so 70-year-old vines, all hand-harvested, fully distemmed, about eight-week spontaneous maceration to give it this color. Orange wine or skin contact wine being just white wine macerated with the skin it gives it its orange color. I like to call it like the sister to rosé when I sell it at Husk. <laughs> and then final fermentation in barrel, 100% malactic fermentation, and then put into this really cool kind of amphora-like bottle. Um, yeah clay if you will why do you think they went with the decision to bottle it like this in this clay bottle instead of being able to oh that's so intense. to see the juice cheers 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 y'all oh. cheers k-dog tastes like persimmons it's so orange oh, yeah wow, persimmon mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I almost thought I was doing association with flavor and color because no, one of the first all. things I smelled was orange peel and like orange blossom. Yeah. Mm. Which I know is everywhere in the south of Spain, like south yeah. east. Yeah, we're kind of. Yeah. Burp. We're a little further. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. This is intense. I can't even think of a way to describe it. It's so light, but aromatic. But a oh lingering texture on your tongue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy Dry. that it has eight weeks of skin maceration. Huh. Tell uh, us about why that's unique. Well, so maceration is common, obviously, in red wine making because that's where you get the color. The skin is what gives the color. Rosé, of course, is just kind of like a bleeding um, or like a dying of the juice uh, with the skin. And winemaking you know in ancient times they never separated white and red grape skins they just fermented naturally and so i think extended skin contact um, can give you unique flavor profiles it can give you a completely different wine compared to how long you keep it on the skins Hmm. this is really crazy flavor wise for how like short it is or sorry how long it is on the skins because you would think it would be like intensely textured. Mm-hmm. It also tastes like butterscotch. So that's why I'm oh. thinking like the fuller Chardonnay. Like I think this would go great with mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this would go great with your turkey. Yeah. Brussels sprouts, always the enemy. Well, um, this is like the golden raisin in the Brussels sprout that you snuck right. in there. You're right. Maybe. That, that's why it can be great to have multiple bottles on the Thanksgiving mm-hmm. table and like bring some bottles for for your friends and for your your sister-in-law over here who's cool and then <laughs> and then uh have some other bottles for uh aunt karen yeah aunt karen and aunt karen. who needs the chardonnay and so the more the merrier yeah it, this is not an exact science with especially with thanksgiving that's what's so fascinating that's why we're talking wine today because there's not that many wrong answers there's a ton of right answers mm-hmm it's true. I mean, it's also every wine is so different from one another that you can't kind of cookie cutter what is an ideal pairing because it also depends on how you're cooking the food. Even the like growth of the food. Is it freshly cut with herbs? Does it have an herbal component or does it have 
um, you know, maybe the Brussels sprouts were frozen and then they have kind of a mushy texture to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like how would that change the wine? Cause it's all chemicals. This would be dope with one of like my personal Thanksgiving traditions, something that I usually, if, if I'm not really that much involved in the Thanksgiving feast, I usually do bring, you know, let's say one or two dishes. And one of my hallmarks is carrots. Mm. I love carrots. I love kind of bringing that to the Thanksgiving table because it's not a typical dish. It's occasional. Well, yeah, yeah. As in now, tell me now. Yeah, so or it's, or the no. I got one of the secrets <laughs> from uh, from our buddy, our good buddy, Chef Brock, and who who I think got the idea from Ferran Adria. Uh, so taking carrot juice, cooking it down slowly mm. over time, uh, letting it reduce slowly, no no top on the pot, just letting it kind of cook down, cook down, and then right kind of towards the end, when you feel like it's reduced to the level where you want it as just like a glaze that you're gonna you're gonna kind of brush over, you're gonna kind of ladle it over these carrots that you roast in the oven, barefoot Contessa style, on a garden style. So just like salt and pepper, maybe a little drizzle balsamic in the oven at high heat, 450. 30 minutes and you're looking for that color you're looking for that roasty caramelization that's it so the roast carrot part is really easy but the carrot juice thing you cook that down for a while and then right when it reaches that level uh where it's reduced enough you add in say four tablespoons of butter and a good little squeezing maybe what would the ounce be maybe an ounce to two ounces of orange juice all right you add that in you whisk those mm. together, so you've got this carrot juice, orange butter thing going that you're cooking down. Maybe you sneak in a little turkey stock that we talked about earlier, the chicken stock. Maybe Damn a little my. bit of this orange wine. You're sneaking that in. You're whisking, whisking, whisking. And then you have this like glaze that you then put over the carrots. And people are like, what is this? Um, and I, I love that. So I feel like this wine mm -hmm. would be the ultimate yeah. pairing for... The, the orange and carrot juice glazed carrots. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Damn. So we also goosebumps. didn't talk about sweet potato or squashes in our Thanksgiving. Mm. Sweet potato is so is such a such a uh, a big tradition here for me in Nashville. My mother in law Kathy does the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top. Mm. That's just like amazing. The sweet potato casserole. Yeah. But yeah. Talk to oh. me. What what would you kind of if you're just pairing a wine with sweet potatoes, sweet potato casserole. Well, our Thanksgiving, we do mashed potatoes, but also there's a lot of mashed things. Yes, so Thanksgiving. Mashed sweet potato, mashed squash. Ooh, so you a got a squash thrown in mashy there. things. Yeah, well, Jordan, has, has, he's a big guy. He's a strong <laughs> guy. You're cooking things down and you're like, mash this. Mash things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think um, this sounds cliche, but like colors sometimes go together with pairings, like with, you know, rosé goes great with beets, goes great with salmon, goes great with tomatoes. They're all kind of the oh, same God, color. Oh, God, I love rosé and salmon. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I mean, I think you can kind of almost play that not everyone is created equal, but I think some a wine like this that, you know, is a little less funky and has kind of savory qualities i think you could you know play around with some you know sweet potatoes maybe with some 
roasted nuts on top or mm, mm. Um, seeds or a combo of both um, yeah. to give it some crunch element squash that's roasted as well like butternut or delicata mm. brown butter yeah mm. wow something yeah. that's sweet I don't, I don't think this wine has any fear of like butter or salt mm-hmm. at all yeah it's like this uh sly little counterpart to all those because yeah. it's, it's vibrant as we're drinking it too i feel like it's opened up already a little yeah. bit where it's like more of the the citrus and the kind of the brightness of it's coming through now mm-hmm you know, for people who may not be open to this kind of style of wine, this could be a good introduction for them. Yeah, um, and which is a great thing to bring to the Thanksgiving table if you're going to bring <laughs> wines like this where it's like, Mom, Dad, Grandma, you guys got to check out this this orange wine. You got to check out this skin contact wine. They're like, what? I don't want any of that shit. But... Maybe this is one to introduce to the family because I think that plays into if you're going to talk about like interesting and cool wine for Thanksgiving, you better be able to sell it yeah. to your family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was pouring this for Aunt Karen. I would probably say, <laughs> Aunt Karen, take a gulp of it and don't like, don't take a sip first. Take a gulp first. And she will. And this is the one time a year that she drinks anything other than California uh, Chardonnays and probably box of cabernet mm-hmm. Something. Mm-hmm. well this does see a lot of similar winemaking to the richer style of california mm-hmm. chardonnay true that for those of us that are prepping for thanksgiving we're cooking thanksgiving we're having people over we're alone for thanksgiving with our liquid gold friends tell us a little bit about what makes a wine natural why does it matter and why do we enjoy those wines uh, i think it's definitely a hot term right now definitely i think it's worth exploring let's explore yeah let's put our um, headlamps on well i th- i think it it is a huge mirror for the organic local food movement people care where they get their food from uh they care where you know if it's organic how it's grown and so i think that has bled into winemaking and we people have been growing grapes farmers have been making wine like this for years but as we create a brand for something like this i think that natural wine which technically doesn't have like a definition in the sense of saying uh i can get a certificate for my winery that says it's natural that's not a thing right but most natural wineries or winemaking styles will be biodynamic, sustainable, or organic. They'll use little sulfites. Of course, that is a part of the fermentation process and a huge stabilizer. Um, because these wines are being shipped across the ocean, they right. need to be stabilized at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but minimal intervention. And I think that that can be good and that can be bad and i think that you just have to know where to look specifically back labels like savio suarez selections like selection masal importers that have wines that are maybe naturally made but cleaner styles Mm -hmm. so that's kind of a factor for you when you're tasting through wine someone says hey try this maybe you'll throw it on the list you're kind of like not not only are you looking at the maker and you're smelling, you're tasting all these things, but you're looking at the importer, you're looking at the back, you're kind of looking at these things. Totally. So that matters. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. I think as a 
buyer in Nashville, I've kind of had to create a format for myself um, in how I'm choosing wines and importers and and how they run their business is important for me to be able to choose their wines. I think that um, natural wine is awesome, but I do think there are a lot of bad natural wines. And I think that we just need to kind of get to the next level to understand what really a natural wine is. It's kind of a baby. Yeah. Mm. Um, I also think that they're pretty expensive. And mm-hmm. how can we get, for example, you've probably seen the La Boutanche labels. It's like the little French bulldog. Oh, yeah. We or, carried it mm-hmm. at, uh, yeah. at Chopper. That was one of our go-tos for the summer. We had like a the Challenger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the red. Yeah, we yeah, had that. Germany. Yeah, it yeah. was great. It was amazing. And their Gamay, I think that they released like last year or something, mm-hmm. was amazing. I yeah. Thought. It was really good. So their business model is to find natural winemakers and sell wines that are clean, naturally made at a low price point. Right. Mm-hmm. That was the point of that label, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. A lot of liter bottles. Yeah. Going back to your price per ounce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> PPO. So I think, um, you know, and this is, it's, some people just want to buy a bottle of wine and, you know, be done with that. But I think oftentimes people are interested in um, knowing a little more. And I think back labels can help with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Looking, following back labels. Following the back labels. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And you're looking for the importers. Again, throw out a few that you trust that you like that you're if you're at a wine shop mm-hmm. and you're looking for these light, natural, non-interventionalist styles. Yeah. What Kermit are some? Lynch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Rosenthal, Savio Suarez Selections, Selection Masal, Jose Pastor Selection. Mm-hmm. All are just. Those are some bangers. Yeah. That's yeah. great info. That's it. Ah, that's, yeah. That's that's killer. Yeah. I think. Um, it's easy for people to be able to see those back labels, feel confident in that, and be able to choose it without even knowing anything about the current wine. It's almost like it uh, is a, an indicator of any more for me. It's like an indicator of taste and sort of feel of the wine mm-hmm. uh, rather than like farming practices. But what do you know of the farming practices of some of these wines and these wineries and winemakers? Is it just like, we don't use pesticides. We make things like they were making them a thousand years ago, which is kind of the way to go if you're growing things. Do it Do it as they, it's, it's like a Barefoot Farmer said, probably should be doing it as your great-great-grandfathers did it. Yeah. Rather than like anyone did it in the last hundred years. Yeah. What can you, what, what can you tell us about not just the importing and the taste and everything, but the, the actual farming practices? I know it's not a designated term but yeah what can you tell us about the way that they are treating the treating the land or is it just like well we don't really do much to it yeah i think um oh this is such a big topic this is, well <laughs> it's time to start arguing yeah. it's thanksgiving <laughs> well it's time to argue <laughs> kenneth stop looking at me like that <laughs> i think that after <laughs> world war ii we created commercial farming we've used chemicals we've dug up the land um, we've cultivated the soils and we've kind of ruined the ecosystem of winemaking and I was fortunate the last year and two years actually to visit two major wine growing regions Oregon and Virginia which are 
very different. Um, we have farmers who are in a humid climate, lots of rainfall, trying to farm organically, but also having to use things every year differently. Mm. And so I would say that's more trying to be sustainable and just acclimating to what you need to do to create a crop mm -hmm. that is delicious and that follows your values where Oregon being really dry but hot and so you have to adjust your growing times and I think that or picking times I think that wine growing is much like any other farming it's an ecosystem um, and I think that you have to create balance with the soil mm. most importantly and you have to make sure that everything is is working in balance yeah. and um it takes a long time to understand that and are I, those the two uh most exciting regions to you in america that are making wine yeah i, I know there's a lot of cool stuff going on nor yeah. in northern california at, you know they've been making wine there for a long time but yeah it does seem like oregon virginia yeah virginia especially virginia. seems very interesting because it's sort of just coming up Virginia is gaining more emerging acceptance. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, you think of the Blue Ridge Mountains, some of the oldest mountain ranges in the United States. No one knew what was below them, which is granite. They're covered in trees, and so people start drilling, and then they realize granite is there, and you have a slope, and you have rain, and granite will push the rain out and grapevines don't like to be wet so you have like a natural irrigation system for grape growing and it's pretty incredible and so well, that is incredible if you're saying that that's a natural that's a that's a literally a natural process yeah. not not man trying to mimic natural process yeah. an actual natural yeah. process so that's that's pretty fast. Yeah, I think Virginia is the spot. Yeah. It's going to be um, really big. The quality of wine that's coming out of there's a lot of bad wine, but the quality yeah. of wine that's coming out of there is incredible. And they're not afraid to experiment. Like, oh, they have like 20-year-old Cabernet Sauvignon vines. They're they're like, let's rip it out and let's plant Vermentino or let's mm. plant Albarino because that's a very similar climate. You know, it's humid there. Mm. Um, petite men saying which you never see yeah. kept wrong um, yeah it's i was just blown away by the people the farmers and they're farmers yeah. they really are they're like yeah we had orchards and now we're planting grapes they didn't even know what carbonic maceration was as a grape grower i was like what yeah but that that was they're so like, like humbling work. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're just like we're just growing grapes yeah <laughs> right it was yeah Virginia it's is pretty awesome. Yeah, pretty yeah. amazing. So, would you say? And I'm not being suggestive. Don't don't object here, leading the witness. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are we kind of in the beginning of possibly a really a really fascinating period in like American wine or making American wine? Uh, yes. Are we? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think every state in the United States makes wine, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Alaska mm, makes yeah. wine. Mm. Texas apparently makes some good wine. Well, but I think like what the dry West Texas, yeah. like lonely desert. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, Arizona. You got Ohio actually. Yeah, Tool. Yeah, Maynard. Maynard's making wine. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weird. <laughs> Go there, bro. What do you got? I'll save it for another episode. <laughs> kind of this sweat, no man bullets. <laughs> yeah, 
Virginia makes oh, quality wine, and that's kind of what makes it different than other wine-growing regions. Mm. Now, I feel like pre-Prohibition, there was, I wouldn't say more wine being made, but it was a lot more pronounced, like American wine was a lot more pronounced. Of course, shipping was um, a lot more expensive at the time, too. But I feel like a lot of wine regions that were somewhat popular pre-prohibition are just now getting going again Mm -hmm. i mean for the longest time we just had california doing massive amounts of bulk and then you know that thing in the 70s with the with uh with napa emerging like and that's pretty new actually yeah in the wine world like napa is like as an american we hear that name all the time but it's actually kind of new as far as like a respected region totally I think, though, I mean, in Virginia, by law, if you were a landowner, you had to grow, I think it's 10 acres of vines. Wow. So th- the wine growing region in Virginia was tremendous. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, of course. Um, of course, Monticello, where Barbersville mm-hmm. is located. Great wine. I think that Virginia is kind of the motherland. And we moved to california for many reasons with grape growing and they just grow things great there yeah but i do think you know price per acre i think with global warming i think there are other regions that can be booming and i think definitely oregon which has already kind of been established Mm -hmm. but differently Mm -hmm. how about in the tennessee mountains oh i think it's too humid here yeah too humid along those smokies to make it work. Yeah. Mm. I mean, uh, however, they do make wine in Vermont, and but they use a lot of hybrid grapes, no Vitis vinifera. Mm. And Maine has a huge natural wine push right now, Maine wine growers. So I just think um, people have to be adaptable to what they're growing and also probably open up into different grapes. Canada in like uh, Okinawan Valley like central part of the states is a huge wine growing region over like in Toronto area, Niagara, mm-hmm. New York state, also very booming. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Exciting times. Yeah. Which brings us to an exciting addition. Thanksgiving family fighting version of, do you have some uh, ways that we can get into more fights with our families for? <laughs> Booze news. Booze news. With Kenneth Deadman. <laughs> ways booze worthy for Thanksgiving. Ways to get into fights with family. Excellent. Is that how I should start? Yes. Please. I, I don't have it. Please, the editors how, in the offices. Pick a year, and I'll tell you how I got in a fight with my family at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Just pick a year. 2014. 2016. 2016. Yeah. Donald Trump. Fair enough. Pick another year. 14. Donald Trump. <laughs> He was just 2007. <laughs> um, Donald Trump's going to start yeah, well, that, a TV show. <laughs> Celebrity. Apartments. I hated that show, dude. I couldn't stand it. I don't know how he how he did it. I don't know how he did it. Or they did it. <laughs> yeah. That is the Russians. I don't know how they did that. The Russians. So is that going to be the topic of um, Thanksgiving fights this year? 
I try to avoid them now. Well, like, so we've got this. We've got these impeachment but even, hearings. But even which worse is like what isn't I'm like, really our style to get into. But is that is that the Thanksgiving like let's get in a fight topic? I feel like that's the one that's kind of yeah because you you need to go. You can't like <sighs> should we talk about the the uh the 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 bright future of winemaking in America? No, that's not going to get us in a fight. No. We're trying, It's people. when my dad walks through the living room with an Israeli flag and, <laughs> and okay. my sister starts yelling at him about Netanyahu and, like, it's over. And, oh, like, yeah. All right. But it's also halftime uh-huh. the game. Uh-huh. So Halftime, like, good I've, time for a fight. Yeah, yeah like, I've got, I've got a few minutes to throw in some smart-ass shit. Like, Jesus. Oh, enough about me. Let's do booze news. Damn. <laughs> in other troubled parts of the world, uh, Les and Paula Ansley in Muscle Bay, South Africa, have introduced uh, Inlovu Gin, a South African produced gin that is infused with elephant poop. The idea is elephants only, uh, the elephants eat a lot of botanics. And they also only digest like one third of the food that they eat. Therefore, just scooping up elephant poop saves a lot of time and like cultivating uh, botanics. What? Yeah. That's insane. Well, we got uh, three to four thousand bottles rolling out any minute now. And uh, they don't say anything in their, on their website about uh, set troubled elephant populations in Africa. Which I have a, a special like place in my heart for, and also like the impoverished peoples of South Africa. And I'm not talking about the white people who are having to surrender their land. Yeah, I'm talking about the starving people that are getting, finally getting their land back and no fresh water. Things we were supposed to not talk about today on Liquid Gold. Let's move on to Europe. Shit, dude. Sorry, y'all. Um, Nine hundred jet to Europe. 900 bottles of booze were finally recovered from the Kairos ship that was sunk in 1917 by a German U-boat. The ship contained 600 bottles of anti-cognac from a, from a since then defunct brand and 300 bottles of Benedictine liqueur, which is now owned by Bacardi. The expedition addition um recovered these bottles from something like 275 feet below sea level so it was extremely hard especially with um with commercial fishing netting that they had to clear for about two or three years prior to entering and and returning these bottles you've got my attention so the ship itself holy shit the ship itself was um was on route from france to saint petersburg presumably Florida to Saint yeah uh, <laughs> yes good one we'll, we we'll get to Florida here in a few um, <laughs> oh great <laughs> presumably to the to the then capital of of Russia Saint Petersburg for Tsar Nicholas II's extensive wine cabinet prior to his death and also presumably also presumably to be drinking by Rasputin who. Wow! Yeah, oh, really, really that's good. That's mind blowing. Would be a great mid-dinner refreshing palate cleanser, or uh, would be better after the meal. Benedictine. Keep um, some Benedictine in the freezer, and then pull it out 
and blow minds. Say like, oh, mom, dad, I've been making liqueurs. I made this. You know what I would do is I would just sneak. <laughs> I would sneak Benedictine into the Petanot and oh, wow. give it to Aunt Controversy. Karen. It'll Next sweeten level. it up. It'll sweeten Aunt it Karen's up. Karen's gonna Aunt be Karen's drinking like, Benedictine. It's too dry. I'll just like. <laughs> I'll put a sugar cube and Benedictine in there. And give it to Aunt. Taste Karen. the history, Aunt Karen. She's like, Let Bene- me Bene- tell Bene- <laughs> Benediction. Like, Bene- Don't who? start with better, me. Bene- Bene- better get me a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, in wine news, but not necessarily in wine news. In Bonn, in the Burgundy region, the world's largest private collection of fighter jets sits in between fields and fields of Pinot Noir grapes. 87-year-old Michael Pont, who is a former French Air Force uh, retired, or who is a French Air Force retiree, uh, began his collection in the 60s. Now, boasts something like 110 um, fighter jets from all over the world from all times. The jets that he loves the most mm. are the American jets, the, the very few American jets that he was barely able to acquire because his, because of his uh, affinity, his love for the United States and the, the freedom that we granted them during How World War How old is this dude? 87. Sounds like he should have crashed in an open field a long time ago. Oh. I'm, no, I mean, it's amazing he's around at 87. I collect jets and I fly them around. I don't think he flies them. I think they're Around just like, Burgundy. Uh, right? <laughs> it's pretty insane. Um, a uh, Burgundy uh, wine winery was destroyed by a local jet collector. He does Apparently all his, local videos. his museum is like, uh, it's a huge attraction in like the whole like Burgundy wine trail. Oh yeah, like, like take a break. Yeah. Take a break like, from yeah. the wines. Check out the jets. Yeah. But you also can't, there's You're no, drunk. There's no aeronautic the museum. museum in France or in, and like their, their Air Force bases are like, off limits. I think most military bases are anywhere in the world are kind of off limits. Yeah, they're like, like they don't we're, do not, tours. we're not trying like, to go to war anymore. Yeah, we keep the bombs done. there. We're done. <laughs> we make shitty food over here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's where the dead ones are. <laughs> it's pretty insane that there probably are still like shells from World War II in some of the vineyards. No, nah, I bet. Um, incredible. It's no, it is. Germany is. They were hungry for France. They yeah. wanted all the wine. I bet. Um, production of a Angelina Jolie movie was recently evacuated for the day because they had found like a World War II bomb. Something this somewhere. Oh right? wow! But like, I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, insane. All over the world. Yeah. As long as we've been making bombs, there's still some out there just oh, like, sitting there. Yeah. Like. Sheesh. Um, Vieques in Puerto Rico. It's like, and that's booze news. <laughs> Excellent! Wow, what a crazy uh, family feast version of <laughs> booze news today. It's emotional. Plenty to argue about. Plenty to fight about. Plenty to ponder. I feel like I'm gonna have, I have nightmares. Nothing but maybe things to ponder tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Thank you for that, yeah. Kenneth Dedman. Master of booze news, gone Burgundy himself. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> That's been amazing. So, Sheesh. let's celebrate New Year's Eve together. Nicola Danielle Anktel, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your amazing wine knowledge, 
insight into orange wine, skin contact wine, natural wine, sparkling wine, and Thanksgiving Parapalooza expertise. Thank you. Thank you so much this for coming. This is amazing. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Just hanging with friends, huh? Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. So cool. We don't get to hang out too OG often. OG so. style. Yeah, right? It's kind of surreal. I was like looking over you and I'm like, I'm hanging with Nicolette right now. This is amazing. <laughs> I love it. We want to throw a shout out to weownthistown.net. You can find us on there. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Text out podcast episodes. It's so easy to do. Tell Leave us friends. a rating. Tell Send your friends. DM. DM Mike. DM us on, on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. You can hit up Deadman, Kenneth Deadman at Deadman K on Instagram. Do you so. can talk some trash to him. I'm at I Mike Wolf underscore Garden to Glass. Garden to Glass, Grow Your Drinks from the Ground Up is in stores and on Amazon. The book is out. And I want to throw a shout out to the Garden to Glass block party that's happening at Chopper Thursday, December 5th. We will have bands and food trucks and a lot of stuff going on that night. That's going to be a ton of fun. Drink specials. We will be throwing herbs into all kinds of daiquiris. Bryce will be there making bookmarks and we'll be just doing a lot of crazy shit. What can I say? It's Thursday, December 5th. You're going to do Garden a, of Glass. You're going to do a cartwheel. Party. I'll do a cartwheel as long as you're there to catch me when I fall. Aww. I'll always be there to catch you when you <laughs> fall. <laughs> Love you, buddy. I need you. And happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and happy Thanksgiving to both of you. I love you guys. Love you. Love you too, Mike. Thank y'all so much for love being here. Both. Love you, Nico. We will see you on our champagne shots episode. And happy holidays to y'all. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Don't get in too many arguments. Don't drink too much whiskey. But drink a lot of wine. And never forget Aunt Karen. Be sweet to each other. We'll see you next time on Liquid Gold.